Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleashed and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. everybody today we have bobby bambury all the way from the states in new jersey am i right yes that is welcome. correct awesome welcome to the show thank you so much for being here thank you thank you for having me why don't we start off with if it's okay with you just uh introducing yourself telling telling us uh your listeners a little bit about yourself and what we're going to be talking about today Sure. My name is Bobby Bambry, and I'm a certified dog behavior consultant and a dog trainer. I have been in this industry for over 20 years. I also am an agility enthusiast and competitor, so I love dog sports. Um, and I've been doing that for over 20 years. I started working with um, dogs in the shelter environments. I worked at the ASPCA. And they were a much smaller organization in New York City. Now they're a national organization and also, I think, doing some international work. Um, and so I spent many years working for them, working at local shelters, learning a lot about stress and canine body language and how to support dogs in these really stressful environments. Um, and I also started working in private practice, working with clients, pet dogs. And over time, because of my love of dog sports and um, some of the challenges I was having with my own dogs, I really started to focus on behavior work. I would say for the last maybe 14 years, 13 years has been behavior work primarily. Um, and then about five years ago, I joined, I joined an organization called Behavior Vets and we have a team of doctors, veterinary behaviorists, and residents on staff, as well as behavior consultants. And we specialize with the kind of issues that um, sort of like your average dog trainer might not be able to handle, or um, we might need the support of a doctor as well as behavior modification. So think of the veterinary behaviorists as the psychiatrists of the animal world and the Behavior consultants is the psychologist of the animal world, and I've just always loved psychology, and that has been my jam. Like, I just, this job has been incredible because I get to work. I'm one of those people that actually really like to work complex cases. Um, I get very bored working with puppies unless it's my own puppy. <laughs> I'll snuggle a puppy any day, but, you know, like having conversations about house training, I'm like, oh, that's boring. Give me the serious aggression cases i'm weird like that i don't know why oh, i'm right there with you <laughs> yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir right now yeah <laughs> i have colleagues that have been like oh my god i need to balance these hard cases with like some easy puppy places like give me like pulling on leash I'm like oh that's so boring <laughs> but yeah. i know that it is a challenge for pet owners so yeah we do address it yeah. Um, and so that's sort of, that's been my journey in a nutshell. I'm the, also the director of education here at Behavior Vet. So we do a lot of um, work to support the professionals in our field 
So that, and we have a lot of even clients like pet owners, pet guardians, um, tuning into our work just to learn more about, um, their dogs and their cats, all kinds of, um, and species. We have someone speaking about horses in the fall this year. Yeah. Like, yeah, wow. like specifically veterinary handling and preparing your horse for that kind of work, uh, for husbandry work, which is cool. Yeah. And, you know, I think the horse industry needs to catch up as well. <laughs> right? Oh, so that's, yes. That's really cool. That's so great to hear. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, like I say, so similar to myself. Like, I love the behavior cases. I I, I got to a point, I've, I've definitely got to a point where I'm, if I get a puppy case in, I'm like, no. Nah. I'll just get one of my team to do that because they're better at it. Me because they they get more invested in it with than me. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and today, uh, one of the one of the things that I've been you know I've been following you for a little while online. Um, and one of your projects, one of the pieces of work that you've been working towards, is that uh, resilience rainbow. Um, Mm-hmm. And I'd love to dive into that today because that's such a cool project. And it's such, in, in my opinion, such an important topic for dog guardians to kind of get their head around and understand. Yeah. So we created this, I co-created this with Dr. Kathy Murphy. She's a veterinary surgeon and neuroscientist. Also been a friend of mine for, I think, 12 years now. And she started working at Behavior Vets a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, almost two years ago. And so she and I have been having this conversation about resilience for a long time, both in our personal lives with the dogs we've had over the years. You know, she adopted a Rottweiler that was from Romania. She's Kathy's in the UK and I'm here in the States. So she adopted this Rottweiler from Romania with a history of trauma. And so, you know, you're, kind of conventional training wasn't going to work for this dog. I got a Jack Russell Yorkie who's uh, Marvel. He's the most coolest dog. Uh, But he, when he turned about, I got him at like five months old from a shelter where I was working at the time. And he, when he turned about, uh, I'd say like maybe he was 14 or 15 months. It was like something just snapped in his brain. And it just like, he was, became he was kind of moving in a more reactive way, but direction. Um, but it was like, it, it was bizarre. It just felt like this is not my dog. This is like what happened. It was like beyond trigger stacking. It was just like his brain exploded and he just couldn't manage so many things. Like his nervous system was on overdrive. And so we started having all these conversations about resilience without understanding that this is what we were discussing. We were just talking about, feel the overwhelm that the dog was feeling or experiencing like the nervous system being on overdrive, discussing it as like bandwidth, like they can only sort of take in so much at once, um, not wanting to be touched both dogs, but for different reasons that we suspected and exploring those journeys. And I was doing agility with Marvel at the time. He's now 10. I was doing agility with him. Um, and Kathy was just trying to help this, Rottweiler adjust to living in her home in a slight, a somewhat urban area um, in Newcastle. So it was really challenging for the both of us. But it's 
it developed into all of these conversations about resilience. And then we did a seminar for behavior vets in July of 2022 on resilience. And from there, we discovered all these themes that kept coming up. And there was people were very excited about the conversation of resilience, looking at it from the neurobiological perspective. Um, because it's you can't it's difficult to like operationalize resilience really right so um looking at it in just you know outcome driven um techniques or like result driven techniques or consequential kind of training like if you do this i'll give you a treat or if you do that i'll give you access to whatever it is it wasn't enough. And I, you know, in my own journey with Marvel and her journey with Nancy, and then even ourselves, like it wasn't enough. Um, it was one piece of it. And then because she's a neuroscientist, she started to help me fill in all the gaps of like, oh, that's why this happens this way, or that's what could be going on. And and then because I'm a dog trainer, I was able to, and then also working with like hundreds and hundreds of dogs over the years in all these different contexts, dog sports, behavior work, dog training, and shelter work, I could give her my personal experience from a practitioner's perspective. Um, Kathy's also done a lot of work with dogs over the years with Rottweiler Rescue. She had her own private practice as a veterinarian before she became a neuroscientist. So it was really cool that we were able to bring these different backgrounds and and our past experiences into this conversation of resilience and then after doing the seminar like i said we were discovering that there were these themes that kept coming up and we started to call them domains i will say this that four of our domains come from trauma research and trauma research for humans for other species specifically humans and i when i was struggling with marvel when he was like 2 years old or maybe 3 years old I was, I read Patricia McConnell's blog and she talked about resilience and trauma. And I thought, oh my God, that sounds like my dog is traumatized, but I don't believe anything happened to him. I got him at five months old, but this is like what I'm exploring already with him. You know, how do I apply it to my dog uh, in terms of, you know, the work with trauma and the, the domains that come from trauma research are safety and security, agency, social support, and mental physical well-being. So the research tells us that those areas need to be fulfilled to support someone's dealing with trauma. And then at the same time with the work that I was doing with Kathy, we started to see that like having kind of ritualistic experiences or predictability makes a massive difference. And then um, many years ago, Sarah Streming talked a lot about decompression and bringing that concept into the sports world, the dog sports world, the pet guardian world. And of course, you know, I was doing that all with my dogs already, but I started to think about it in a more sort of therapeutic way for my dogs, not just, oh, I'm hiking them because it's fun and it's enriching and it's a great way to exercise them. And I've always had like, three to seven dogs at any given time. So it was just so much easier to go out with all of them at the same time. So it was this convenience. I have seven dogs now. So, but I started to think about it in that different way. And again, bringing that com concept back to Kathy, I started to learn about the neuroscience 
behind decompression? Like what is underneath that? How does it support it? And then lastly, completing the stress cycle, where that came from is because in 2020, you know, we're all during dealing with the shutdown or the whole world shut down for like three months, at least three months, some countries longer. And um, it was during that time that I was listening to a podcast with Brene Brown. And she was talking to two people, Emily and Amy Nagowski, who wrote a book called Burnout Completing the Stress Cycle. And I was like, oh my God, I need to read this book. So I listened to the podcast. I was like, this is amazing. This is what I'm doing with Marvel, like a lot of this work already. Cause, and I didn't see it as like completing the stress cycle or resilience. I saw it as bandwidth. Like he only has so much bandwidth to deal with all the things happening in this day in this week and this month or in his life. And how do I preserve it so that I can, so that he can have the bandwidth to do the sport that I love to do. And, and I did always consider like, maybe I don't do this sport with him, but he just kept improving. So we kept going with it. So completing the stress cycle really talked about how the nervous system is activated and how to support the nervous system and coming back down to baseline. Because if you don't, chronic stress leads to disease and illness, both mental and physical or injury. And, and so then again, I was sharing all this with Kathy and the book that I was reading. And I was like, oh my God, everyone is so stressed out about the pandemic. Like you've got to read this book because there's things that we can do to support ourselves. And um, so she and I started to explore the neuroscience behind it as well. And what could that mean for us? And what could that mean for the dog? I mean, we like my husband and I bought a Peloton bike, like we started to like meditate, like do all these things to complete the stress cycle because we were so anxious and stressed like the whole world during that time. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. There's, there's a lot to dive into there. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry. That's I just like so great. I was like, here, everything yeah. at once. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. It's um Every single one of those elements. Um, let's. Can you mind just recapping what those elements are for us? In yes. So, the seven domains that we have set aside to say, like, this is what the resilience rainbow framework is. Um, and there could very well be more than seven, right? If there's not, like, this isn't be all end all. It's really what we kept coming back to as the most um, profound ones, the most impactful ones is decompression, safety and security, completing the stress cycle, mental and physical well-being, predictability, uh, social support and agency. And every single one of them, it's not like one is one more than more important than the other. Like one of them is so essential. I'm also going to try to keep things nice and simple for a second because I, and I just want to take a couple of steps back. You mentioned that uh, resilience is very hard to operationalize, but rather than operationalizing it, like what can we, what is the goal? Like in terms of that, like yeah. for, for the average dog person or for anybody really like resilience, we all know that it's important, but what is it? Yeah. So resilience is the ability to bounce back from stress as well as resist the negative effects of stress. So if you're, if, I mean, if a dog is living in a rural, like in the countryside with like no boundaries and rules and they're just like running around and doing whatever, that's a very different lifestyle that I would like to lead, frankly. 
Um, and so there, the sort of the environment and all that the dog is experiencing is potentially allowing the dog to be a more resilient or have a higher resilience than maybe the dog that lives in an urban area. Like I said, I, you know, I worked in New York city. We were talking before we started recording the podcast. I worked in New York city for many years and, um, it was a really great example of like, I just saw, observed, learned how it is not possible to really help these dogs overcome some of the stressors that they were experiencing. So again, just by being in this field for so long and having conversations with other experts and um, knowledgeable people, including Dr. Kathy Murphy, you know, you start to really explore how can I support this client, this guardian and their pet, their dog in this really challenging environment? Like, how can I help them? Because I can't counter condition and desensitize the entire city. Like, there's just no way. No. Like, how does this work? Right. And the same, I was seeing the same thing in the dog sports world. Like, we can do everything that we could possibly do. But when you step into the ring at a competition, the amount of pressure that you might be feeling, the everyone's energy level, the dogs, the people are at a higher level than you would be in a class or you would be at home, right? So they're, you're feeding off of that energy, the nerves that you're feeling now, that's so different compared to what you're doing when you're practicing in your backyard or with your friends at the local club. So it's, I just had, I'm a little tired today because I'm still recovering from a three day. It was a four day event, but I went for three days for um, a regional agility event. And I'm like, I was like, it's so much peopling, but mm. not that that's a word, but it's a word I'm using now <laughs> no. because you just like are, you're so you're, I loved it. And I'm so drained from it because yeah. you're on and you're talking and you're planning and you're strategizing. And then you've got to have this intense focus um, to memorize the course and then you have to practice it in your head like visualizing it over and over and over again and then you've got to do run it and you're doing this for three days and it's like 12 hour days and it's very long and it's draining yep. and it's and and you have your nerves like your competition nerves that you're feeling and your dog is now like wait everything about you is different now like what's going on All and to be able to different. be Right. And to be able to be resilient to that. Right. So then I was, it's my own dog that have taught me so much about, you know, how can I like support you in managing stressors, bouncing back from them, recovering from them, not have them be, have this like lasting impact on them and then go back into doing what we do day to day and it'd be okay. And I, and I think it's a really uh, important thing that you've, you've said there without actually saying it is that that's not negative stress in the sense that this isn't something yeah. this is something you enjoyed this is but it still takes its toll and you know we see um another example of that that we might just see in like day-to-day -day life with dog people is my dog loves the dog park so i want to go there every day and right over time you start you might start to see behavior deteriorate it might become more and more antisocial because they're just running on empty after after x amount of time doing that relentlessly yeah and that i think any any one of us only has 
uh, can only ever take so much before they go, do you know what? I'm tired. <laughs> right. And more, the more tired I am, the more tired my dog is, the more tired any of us are, the lower our resilience. And so we're going to see yeah. from that, right? And that's where you can, you know, like if you, you burn the candle at both ends and then you get sick, right? Or you burn the candle at both ends and then you're really anxious or stressed out and you're snapping at your family members or your projects are not meeting, you're not meeting the deadlines for your work projects or something falls through the cracks and you feel awful about it. But that's, it's the same kind of thing. And it all comes, there's so much human literature about self-care and what does, you know, wellness look like for you. Um, And this is not about the self-help books. This is truly about self-care and understanding the biological impacts of stress, including fun things, right? Like going to a concert every weekend is going to wear you out after a while, (laughs) even if it's Taylor Swift every single weekend or or those, or, you know, my husband is a fish fan and like, so he's in this fish community and there's folks that will travel the world to see them and see them at like every other weekend as part of their vacation. And that's all. But over time, if you're going to a show over and over again, just your just your nervous system being activated and elevated for prolonged periods of time without enough time to come back down to that individual's baseline can impact health and, men- and mentally and physically. And the same goes for dogs. Like if the dog, and you can see this in shelters where if they're just there for a long time or a period of time, maybe for that individual, a month is too long. Um, and they're very scared and they're very anxious and they're very upset or very frustrated. Just having that elevated state of um, whatever is going on for that dog can result in, like I've seen dogs in shelters where they have um, digestive issues, they have GI tract issues, right? Inflammation, diarrhea all the time. Um, or they're guarding their food and then they go home and then that behavior is not there anymore. Right. Or that's, or they have, um, skin issues the entire time that they're there and then they leave and then you see their immune system sort of level out and then their health improves or aggression issues like that level of arousal. You just start to see it kind of decrease. It's incredible what chronic stress can do. And even just good stress, like we just talked about, if you know, I had this awesome experience at this event for several days in a row and it was exciting and thrilling. And if I made sure like today, you know, yesterday we went to the beach, my husband and I, we just like chilled out. And then my dogs did nothing all day after three days of doing so much. And then today we took a walk in nature and like, you know, I'm being very thoughtful of like how I planned out my week this week to support myself in my recovery and my dogs who were competing in their recovery, yeah. both mentally and physically. Yeah. I, it's just, for me, it, it's such a huge piece of the puzzle that I will guide, you know, the guardian through, because I'm not saying that it's more important than, you know, learning how to communicate with your dog. It's, but it's right up there with it. Um, because at the end of the day, like obedience and all, all of that stuff that traditionally 
you know, as the emphasis has been on with dog guardians and dog training historically, it all falls apart if our dogs are suffering physically and emotionally and mentally from stress. And if their resilience mm. is really low and we are seeing a stressed out dog or, you know, a, a mm. dog that is struggling in that moment, then it takes, in my opinion, it has to take priority here over any obedience training. It's just help the dog's well-being yeah. first. Absolutely. So the very cool thing about this framework is that it's a it's about concepts versus actual exercises. So or skills or techniques or tools. So if you so decompression, we'll look at decompression. There's so many ways to provide decompression. And really, and for each domain, you're looking at the individual and sort of yeah. the lifestyle and the guardian or the whoever is responsible for that dog, whether it's an entire family or just an individual. And we're looking at how can we set up a plan to support them or what's missing for this dog and what can I put in, right? So like decompression can look like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I went on a walk today in nature and I took five dogs with me, four of which were like, this is the bomb. Like, this is amazing. They run around, they sniff, they chase things, they go in the water, they just do whatever. And and I made it really like a point to just let them do whatever we want, they wanted to do. And I went at a time where I knew that we wouldn't really bump into anybody. But I took one other dog with me because he gets anxious when he's alone. Um, and he's still nervous of my husband. He's a Yorkie. I got him from a hoarding case in 2020 at the age of seven or eight. So he's was living in a cage most of his life. And he just has never gotten comfortable with my husband. Um, even though my husband's like really tried. So I bring him places with me. And he, for him, walking in the woods is not decompressing. It sucks. He's just like, can you just carry me, please? So I have a backpack for him and he yeah. just goes in my backpack and he just goes along for the ride. But that's not a decompressing situation for him, right? That's not for him. What's decompressing is having an, it's not the same as sleeping, but having a cuddle, right? Mm -hmm. Like he just would love to just cuddle on the couch. That for him is decompressing, right? So you can look at the individual dog and say, how can I help you? Like what works for you? Is it prolonged sniffing? Is it a walk? Is it sunbathing? Is it a cuddle? Like, what is it for you? Um, and then there's some other domains like predictability where you can get into a little bit more of like, how are you reinforcing the dog? You know, what kind of routines have you set up? What kind of rituals have you set up? You know, how can we make this a predictable experience for your dog to address potential anxiety that the dog has? Right. So there's there's so much room to play in these domains. And more often than not, you're working across more than one of these domains. Yeah, there's their concepts for us as the human to kind of get our head around. But then we have to apply. Uh, we have to listen to our dogs and what is actually appropriate for that individual. I, I, I don't have seven dogs. I have two. Seven, <laughs> seven's the dream. Um, but, um, we, seven's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine. I, I don't. I think, uh, I think the most dogs I've ever seen in one of my clients' houses was utterly insane. That was 21. Um, oh, I would never do that. No. My husband will leave me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked. 
to some degree. Uh, it worked for them. Anyway. Yeah, it worked, as long as it works for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my, my individual dogs have got individual needs, um, just like mm-hmm. you pointed out there. And, you know, one of my dogs, his way of decompressing, like you said, is to make contact. He he just wants physical contact. And that's his mm-hmm. way. You can see him just go, okay, that's amazing. Whereas the other mm-hmm. one, if you made physical contact with him, he tolerates it. He's like, okay, that's nice. Okay, I'm leaving now. And mm-hmm. but he likes to move and he likes to sniff. Um, he doesn't particularly enjoy dog play. He's not antisocial with dogs, but he also is like, I don't mind your company, but I'm gonna sniff this bush. Yeah. And it took us it takes time as well. I think this is something that we probably need to be a bit kinder to ourselves as dog guardians because we don't know the individual that we bring into our life. And it doesn't mean you're going to nail it in the first or whatever. Like you, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be learning. But as long as you go in with that open mind as to be flexible as to what do you need, man? I'm going to try to get it right for you and I'm going to try different things. But we should also make sure that on the other end of the scale, we should not be set in our mind as to, well, I want to go hiking with my dog, which is not necessarily good or bad, but don't expect your dog to respond to it the way that you thought that they should, because should is a dangerous yeah. word. Um, yeah. Have, yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, you mentioned right at the start, uh, you know, you you're, you t- kept on taking your dog to um, agility, um, which is you know, it was one of your goals and it's one of the things that you wanted to do with your dog, yeah. which is awesome. But you also appreciated that this was taxing to some degree, not, mm-hmm. and there's a judgment call, isn't there? It's like, okay, at what point am I going to make a call as to whether to, con- to continue or to back off? It's never right or wrong. It's about having that flexibility within yourself to go, okay, I've got to take my dog's opinion on board for this and make sure that if whatever it's doing, whatever impact it's having, I'm accounting for that in other areas of their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, dogs are so emotionally complex and I just, it's similar to, you know, if you're dating somebody and you're getting to know them, right. Or as you, if you have a child and you start to pay and you, if you pay attention to your kid, you're going to see that your kid is changing all of the time. Right. And I know I have friends with really young children who are entering like kindergarten, grade school. And then I have one of my friends, one of my very good friends from many, many years um, since high school. Her first, her oldest son just went to college freshman year, university, you guys say, I think. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so I it's like there's so much and she's sharing with me about where he is today and I met him when he was born it's like bananas this is 18 years later and um and there's so much change and if you and just like we we have this concept in this um resilience rainbow framework where we talk about learn your dog right and so it's if you just slow down and observe and you observe without putting any meaning or any judgment or anything like adding to it, anything of your own thoughts and opinions, and you just observe as objectively as possible, you'll get to notice like what is working and what's not working. And sometimes 
guardians need support understanding the body language because they might misinterpret it or misunderstand it or not even know that that is part of the conversation the dog is trying to have with you. But if you slow down and just sort of sit back and give them space to communicate, as long as it's safe to do so, it's similar to watching your child grow up and go through the different developmental stages. And, you know, if you're, like I said, if you're dating somebody and you're getting to know them and, you, you know, you start to spend more time with them and you see them in different contexts, it's, it's very much like that kind of experience or joining a new work team. And then, you know, you're trying to figure out how to work together and you have this project. And so it's, it's, if there's ever been a time in your life where you're coming into a situation new, or just going back to my friend whose son is now a freshman in college, he's also taking social cues from new people that he's meeting and, you know, new protocols, new policies that he has to get used to being in a college versus in high school and just everything that comes with that, the classes, the structures, like you just, if you slow down and pay attention, then you are going to learn things and observe things that you wouldn't if you're not present in the moment, if you're not taking the time to just observe what's going on without adding anything to it. Yeah. Life is going to happen to us and our dogs. And sometimes it's important to kind of just take, take that stock and go, what is happening in in the individual's life because you know again positive stress going to university is is such a positive thing but there's there's things uh in our dog's life like say for example we just change jobs um, and our work yeah. routine changes or we have a new neighbor's dog move in next door um yeah these are all things that they they are getting a puppy like you have a dog already and now i'm getting a puppy even though they're very excited about the puppy or having a baby, right? Yeah. You're having a baby. That's it. like yeah. you. It's like, and then, you know, it's, it's exactly that. It's okay. Taking stock. How do we, how is my dog actually responding to this? Not how do I think they're, they're going to, or how do I think they mm. should have, but how are mm. they actually responding to it? And then us using that as our information, as our, as, mm -hmm. as to how to respond. There's, I feel like there's definitely a culture of going through, um, almost going through the motions a little bit. Like we can have, there's so many stereotypes out there. Like um, we were talking again off air about the uh, sheep -a doodle um, puppy mm -hmm. I was working with this morning and such a great couple, such a lovely dog. And that they've got it in their head that they've got to tire this dog out. And it's only four months of age and I'm already starting to see the adrenal fatigue kick in mm. because it's being run ragged uh, and there's behavioral fallout from that. And that isn't from this dog loves life. You know, it loves dogs. It loves people. It loves everything, but it's going, it's getting to a point now where this dog isn't getting the opportunity to decompress. It's not, there's there's a lack of predictability and over time there's going to be a problem in that there's going to be adrenal fatigue there's also going to be we're coming into that adolescent stage right and that age yes. of the dog is changing so yeah there's so many factors there that's a really good point about um you have in your again you have this idea in your head this preconceived notion perhaps it's come from the internet or perhaps it's come from like your neighbor or a friend or previous experiences 
um, what's amazing is that, or some TV show, like what's amazing is that there's so much really um, solid research to support how slowing things down and giving yourself the opportunity to reflect like times of reflection for your own life. Where are you? Like instead of racing through life, but that's, if you can apply that to your dog as well, like slowing down, reflecting, like, where are you today? We have so much amazing information out there now uh, and and to educate our guardians to help them see like what is actually happening here. You know, we've done away with the dominance conversation. It's a myth. It's not real, right? The science tells us this. We have, I mean, anyone who's worked in dogs, not anyone, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth there, but you know, I've worked (laughs) and I'll say, speak for myself. I've been working with dogs for 25 years. Um, I can speak anecdotally from working with like thousands of dogs that this dominance conversation is not a real thing. It's a myth. Now, are there times when there's an issue of status or anything like that that might be going on? Or are there times that there might be some conflict aggression going on? For sure. Um, But we have so much good research out there. The science is telling us that our dogs are more emotional, more cognitive than ever thought so before. And so relating them closer to like raising a toddler might be a more real experience, I think. I mean, you can't sit there and say, use your words, but you can definitely, there's a, there's a version of that for our dogs that we can set up. Like I remember, you know, my puppy is seven and a half months old and there was a week, a couple of weeks ago that I'm like, oh my God, you are totally an adolescence. Like he was just so extra and he already is, but he was just like barking and this and that and that and this. And I was like, okay, you've officially entered adolescence. I, you know, I'm going to change a few things like, right. But I know that because I'm in this field. I know that because I've access to the research. I've access to experts. I've access to like, you know, I've had, you know, decade, these two, two and a half decades of experience that I can sit on and say, oh, I know what's happening here. And I know that the most guardians are like, especially first time dog owners, like, I have no idea what's happening. Like, why are you so annoying? Why are you so crazy? Why are you not listening? Like, why are you all over the place? Um, but it's very much like human teenagers. They can't help themselves. The hormones are making them act out and get bananas. And like, that is, it's, you know, when you start to ex- compare it to human teenagers or your own, like, reflected on your own experience as a teenager and how everything was super emotional and like big feelings, you know, people will laugh. My clients will laugh and say, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And that was exactly my puppy a couple weeks ago. And then two days later, he was like back to himself. And I'm sure we'll have another episode like that. It is quite literally the body as it's developing. It's not Mm -hmm. meant to be able to regulate perfectly. You know, it's, yeah. It, it it's not choice. They're not deliberately being dicks. They, <laughs> as much as we might convince ourselves otherwise, yes, you know? <laughs> they're not being spiteful. They yeah. like literally can't help themselves. Which sometimes it's like, oh, I feel bad for you. You can't help yourself right now. <laughs> yeah. but they they need, and I but I do believe, I really do believe that understanding this is so important because in that. Our approach to this, 
you know, as the guardians, as the caregivers, yeah. you know, if we're seeing these behaviors that are undeniably annoying and frustrating <laughs> and exhausting, but if we understand that they, they're going through a hard time, they're not trying to give us a hard time, like that really makes a huge difference because I'm going to come at that with more empathy. And it doesn't yeah. mean that I'm not pissed off. It doesn't mean that yeah. I'm not like hating. You're not annoyed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, I would like to walk away right now and maybe do some bad things, but I can't because, you know, but this is the whole conversation. It's like just that level of empathy. It's the understanding. Like there were, there were definitely, I remember that day I was trying to work and I had like back to back clients virtually. And I thought, Oh my God, dog, I'm just so mad at you right now. Like I just want to bring your neck, yep. you know, but I just, go back to your tools, go back to taking a breath. And it was amazing. And I, I literally felt so bad for him because he was in his crate, like panting for no reason. Yeah. And I said, Oh my God, you were a hormonal mess this week. What a poor kid. And it's just, this is why the, you know, like your podcast is great. Um, and just, there's a lot of good people out there putting good information and, and it's free information and accessible to get it out there to people so they can just know and have this, this knowledge so that they can be more patient and empathetic with their dogs. And hopefully like for me anyway, the more I've learned, the more I'm like, Oh, that's a relief. Okay. Like it'll pass or it's just a phase or I'm not a crap dog trainer, like our dog guardian. Yeah. You know, it's just, it'll, it's, it's, it's been a relief. The more I've learned about the neuroscience and neurobiology, the more at ease I have felt in my, yeah. with my own dogs and myself in my career. Same, same. I, I said yes along beside you there for quite a few times because there was a few points there that just really resonated with me. It's, um, it's allowed me, I think, not just to be a better dog trainer, it's allowed me to be a slightly better human. Um, yes, <laughs> as well. Yes. Yeah. It's... I've, I've, I've just, I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this. Um, and you might only be able to pull on your own experience of this, but you mentioned that your, your own dog, uh, hit that age mark of, mm. was it 13, 15 months? In oh, my, Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the behavior, you know, we started to see you know, behavior deteriorate and the stress of the dog really increase. Um, and anecdotally, I've, in my experience, I've seen, I've seen that pattern at that age happen mm. time and time again. And what you were just saying a second ago around, you know, being able to zoom out, having, having the experience, like I know now if I get that phone call, I'm like, okay, there's a good reason why this is happening. Mm -hmm. it, there's two ways to look at this. And I think you know, one of them is part of my brain goes, okay, it's a phase, but there's also, it won't be just a phase if we don't treat it with like, yeah, we don't address we help, it. yeah we've got to help this dog's resilience out. Uh, otherwise yeah. this won't be a phase. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know. So I'll go back to my puppy. Um, when he was acting like that, I thought, okay. And I'm, you know, I got him, he's a Croatian sheepdog border collie mix. So I got him specifically to do agility. And um, he came from Croatia. He's came from like a very lovely breeder who breeds for dog sports responsibly. Like 
he basically was living on a farm with her and like went everywhere with her with the litter mates. It was just like such a lovely upbringing. So I know that there's some solid genetics there, which is very helpful. And when he was acting like that, those that like week or two where I was like, oh my God, you were just so extra. I just stopped training him. I was like, we're not going to, I mean, we're not training agility, but like puppy skills, like foundational stuff. Um, I just stopped training him and I said, we're just going to take lots of hikes and we're just going to, you're just going to play with your brother and we'll just play and hang out and we're not going to do anything. Um, and I didn't, and there's a bunch of exercises that I do with, um, young dogs who are going to do dog sports where it helps them learn how to like practice shifting their attention from whatever's happening in the environment to what you're doing to the environment to you because that's essentially you need that ability and you also need that ability if you live in urban areas frankly because there's so much going on or you know even if you or if you have a field dog that is going to do field work that ability to like connect back with you so there's so many reasons why this is helpful a lot of my behavior cases we do this work as well and i thought well i'm not even going to do that with you because i don't know where your brain is right now because of your hormones poor kid so we're just going to just you just be a dog and yeah safety is in play and like rules are in play. You just can't start eating things in my house. But I basically just said, I don't think your brain is in this optimal learning state right now. So we're just going to take it easy and play for a while and just to, and just hang out. Um, and I did that for a week. And then we went to a competition, a local one that weekend. And, and he was so focused and I was like, Whoa, okay, you're back. And we were in a very busy place. So I didn't anticipate even being able to bring him into the building without him, his brain exploding, so to speak, like barking and like, oh my God, there's so much happening. But he just, it just timed out that way. And it was so interesting to watch like this difference where I literally for two weeks was like, I can't even get a session in because he's just barking at me and like jumping on me and in my face and like so much more energy. Mm -hmm to now I'm doing this podcast with you and he's sleeping in a creek now for the last like hour or so. Right. He's just so chill. Yeah. Right. And there was a time that I didn't know that, like I didn't, I would try to chain train it or, you know, before I was a trainer with, I didn't even know that this was a thing that dogs would like go through this phase or I knew they went through adolescence, like all animals do, but I didn't recognize that it was as complex or it could be as complex as humans. I didn't yeah. know that in my early 20s when I first started dog training. Yeah, especially if you say you've got to add a dog at any point in your life. And some individuals do breeze through it. And so we might feel yeah. a self sense of false sense of security. Our second dog all of a sudden is an absolute tornado at, you know, at 12, 15. I, I see it at 12, 15, 18 and 21th mark month mark yeah i i see these pockets and i'm like okay yeah that's not a surprise that you're going through this now let me help you like absolutely my my dog before him funky who's three years old now i literally remember almost approaching a year mark and i thought wow he is the nicest dog he's the best dog i don't even if this is adolescence this is a breeze like i mean and then he hit a year and i was like Oh, okay. You're not listening as well. But it, for him, it was a breeze. It was like nothing. For him, it was mostly like he just 
couldn't coordinate his body as well to do the skills for agility, which is normal, right? He's also a border collie with it with like really long legs and, you know, he would grow where like his front end and then his back end would be up and his front end. He was this like very awkward looking dog growing up through adolescence. Behaviorally, I only saw like a very short period of a couple of weeks where he just wouldn't recall, like it wouldn't come when called. I remember I went hiking and he went into this, he started chasing these geese and I had to literally wait. I was that person that waded into the pond to like go collect my dog. Yes. <laughs> it's <my> short <laughs> my pants and my boots and like, and these couple people walking by watching me laughing. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm like way deep in this pond. But <laughs> other than that, it was a breeze for him. Um, and it, you know, he's just a different individual and just to recognize that it is different for every individual, just like kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm about to find out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's also a, a really, um, it's such a different take to the traditional training model of if your dog is not compliant, <clears throat> then mm-hmm. taking a step back can feel like a loss in in the old yes. model, right? Like, you know, if your dog's not yeah. obedient, if your dog is disobeying you, all of those, all those words that are so unhelpful. They just like I can't I can't say it any better than that. They're just so unhelpful because it locks people into a headspace where they feel like they have to win. Oh, I've been there. So I know that headspace. I've yeah. been there for sure. As okay. a guardian, as a professional, if, you know, before I knew what I know now, I've absolutely been there. Like you, if you don't do this thing, it's like if you don't sit mm-hmm. right now then that means like, if I don't make sure you sit right now, then this is going to develop into a problem. And you're going to learn that you don't have to do things when I ask you to do things. And the crazy thing is that is so not true. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I know so many examples of like in dog sports where we're asking dogs to do very complex behavior chains, like very, a sequence of very complex behavior really really fast and oh by the way we're the ones giving them the information because we can read the numbers and they can't right and like but we our brains process information much slower than them like that's Mm -hmm. just the way it goes so they have to rely on us to tell them where to go and they have to deal with so many things at the same time and we're the slow ones and but i've seen these dogs regardless like they figure it out they get it And so the neuroscience tells us that you don't need to be that way. You don't have to make them do the thing that you're asking them to do in that moment, because there's so much more going on under the hood than just them saying, no, I don't want to do it right now. And a good example of that is, again, my puppy, seven and a half months old. And um, I didn't see it so much with him, but I saw it with Funky, where around this age, who's now three, like, if I would ask him to sit and he was excited about whatever was about to happen, he either couldn't sit, not wouldn't, couldn't yeah. sit, or would sit very slowly, which was hilarious to me. I'm like, 
that is the slow, like he would literally move his butt and it would take two seconds or three seconds to hit the floor. <laughs> and like, that doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you're watching it happen, you're like, whoa, that is really a slow sit because his state of arousal was so high, like running to the backyard, going into the backyard. He's like, I just can't sit at the back door. I just can't do it. And it's not that he didn't want to. He's the sweetest like like the best boy ever he literally couldn't because his brain could not make it work in that moment because of shifts in arousal and it made it harder during adolescence and we do most of our training whether you're a pet guardian or you're um, doing a dog sport or whatever or you have a dog in a shelter because they often get surrendered around adolescence like most of like the chunk of the training that we're doing and we're teaching is happening during adolescence when their brains are, their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. Their brain is not fully developed. Like all the parts are not talking to each other the way that they will as an adult. And oh, by the way, especially if it's a larger dog, not a small breed dog, their limbs are growing at like different pace, like rates and their motor response and their motor cortex is like, they're just not, just not working, not working. Mm. That's it. And it's not and, choice. Um, <laughs> There's, it's not their, it's not a choice. It's just biology. And, you know, for me as a practitioner, I, it was a relief to be like, oh, it's just biology. So anytime I don't get the result that I'm looking for, I can look at several things. I'm like either most likely what I'm asking is too much right now. Like my plan, my training plan, it's too much right now. And I teach complex behaviors because of what I do. Um, with my own dogs um, or it's too hard. And the reason it's too hard is that there's some emotional and, and neurobiological stuff happening in this dog right now. Mm. Right. It's not about, Oh, you know, the guardian didn't do the homework. Right. No, it's just like literally for whatever reason right now, the dog's having a hard time. And maybe it's because we're in the middle of New York city and there's like eight dogs over there and they just can't do it right now. Yeah. They can't hand target. They can't sit. They can't look at you. And it's not because they're bad or naughty. It's just, it's a risk. Like they just can't do it. And I'm trying to think of like a human example of that would be like, well, here's an example. I, I was a race walker in, in high school. You know what race walking is? Yeah. 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 Okay. Like they, they have it in like Olympics, right? So yeah. like race walking, yeah. one, one which is my... not the same as speed walking. <laughs> oh, okay. So no, I was assuming speed walking. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the difference. Yeah. Speed walking is like when you see like, I don't know, like some like little old ladies like walking down the street and like they're walking really fast, right? But race walking is an actual sport and a technique to it where you like one foot always has to be touching the ground and then you can't bend your legs when your feet touch the ground. And it's like an Olympic sport. It's crazy. It's yeah. weird. It sounds like bananas that one foot's always touching the ground, but it's all in the hips. So I did this in high school for four years. I was really good at it. And I remember like that was the only time where I did sports where I really had this experience of being like in the zone. Mm -hmm. And I remember there were times that I did not hear my coach, even though he would be standing like in right along the lane and yelling the um, he would yell how long it took me my lap time so that I knew how to pace myself throughout the, the race. And 
there were times that I literally didn't hear him. In, and so like one lap would go and I wouldn't hear him, but the next lap would go and I would hear him. That's all about shifts and states of arousal. It's not a conscious choice of me saying, I don't want to you hear you, coach. Him. Like I, I, yeah, I, well, I, sh- and I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't ignore him. Like I didn't yeah. want to ignore him. I needed that information to know like what I needed to do in terms of going faster or pacing myself. Um, but it's just like, sometimes I would hear him or my teammates would be cheering and yelling and I just couldn't identify what, who was where, or, you know, or if they said my name or I remember, Oh, I'll give you an example. I, uh, this past weekend when I ran my dogs and agility at the competition, I did not remember, I did not hear my friends cheering for me, but when I watched the video, I heard them cheering for me, which was crazy. It's, it's states of arousal. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. I've had a few experiences similar to that. I used to run uh, 800 meters track and uh, play rugby. And I, in both sports and tennis, like every single sport I've ever played, I had that, <laughs> I had that tunnel vision. If I think about it, I was so in my, in my own state and in my own self that, yeah, I, I was not very coachable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're um, so present, right? But those shifts in arousal is because it's giving it's basically like prioritizing your attention, the like glucose um, you know, oxygen going into your muscles. Like it's basically setting up your body to do the thing that you're trying to do in that moment, which is I don't know, like rugby. I don't remember. I don't, I know rugby, but I don't know, like all the roles or like hitting the ball with the tennis racket or like, you know, measure, you know, it's just, it's incredible how automated this can become, you know, for you and with practice. And this is the thing that we talk about in resilience rainbow framework and resilience. We we dubbed it resilience conditioning because it's very much like, you know, like doing a sport, you practice, 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 and then your mind and body really tune in together to be able to do this. And it's like, or like working out in the gym, you're lifting weights and you build muscle, right? So you can actually sort of condition or flex your nervous system in such a way where you can feel a little stress and overcome it, feel a little stress and overcome it. And it's not a conscious process. It's not like, oh, I, I will choose to be okay about this right now and get over it. It's like, I can say that, but that doesn't mean my body believes it. And that's where completing a stress cycle conversation comes in. And it's very cool if you think about, well, I'm going to practice stressing my body and then bringing it back down to baseline. And that's like essentially what a lot of work that I do in behavior work is what we're doing, but we're doing it in a way that's really like, it's ethical and it's kind and it's all based on the dog's body language and behavior and feedback. Like, does this work for you? No. Okay. Then we're doing something else or how do we, or something big happened. Okay. Well, like, how do we help you recover from it? So it's, you can get there faster and then it doesn't feel, and we do that again and again and again, and then it's not so big over time. Right. And unfortunately, when you live in certain situations, like an urban environment, there's no, like you go for a walk three times a day, at least like there's no break from the noise, the cars, the number of people and dogs. So like, how do I help you not have such a significant response to the noise, the cars, the people and dogs? Yeah. Right. And so that's a lot of the work that we do with this, with this framework. 
Yeah. We're, we are, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon, but I think, uh, yeah, yeah. It's so great. I'm loving this because there's so many different tangents where my head's like, oh man, I could talk about this for hours. Um, very cool. It's so cool. I think, uh, I think one of the similarities with your work and my own is we're working in those urban environments. Those, those, the environments themselves can be so, they're so amazing. You know, the city life, I, it's, it can be addictive, um, but it's, <laughs> it's uh, it, it doesn't come without the pressure, without pressure. And sometimes those pressures are pretty hard to escape. Uh, one, one of the things I, cause I, I'm, I don't know if you know this, but um, I'm English. I grew up in the English countryside and. I could uh, tell. I was like, your accent yeah, is a little bit not English, quite there, is it? but it's... you're in New Zealand or Australia, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Like I was like, yeah. Well, yeah. So I was like, I'm like here in a mix. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, when I first moved here, um, oh God, 12, 13 years ago now, um, the big distinction I made straight, like pretty early on was in England, I constantly had to kind of ask people, you, you just please just do more with your dog. Um, your dog is mm. so frustrated. Those needs, those enrichment needs aren't being met or rather, the enrichment needs of for being fulfilled and engaged and you know doing activities just aren't being met whereas in the city life the enrichment needs are so different but exactly the same but different ones are being met like they're constantly stimulated and the enrichment yeah. need of being able to rest recover uh decompress is and and even the sense of safety is more easily and more readily compromised um yeah. It's a different, I had to look at it through a completely different lens because fundamentally our dog's enrichment needs are the same, but different environments were triggering them and meeting some yeah. and not others. And part of my job was to go, to be able to pretty quickly go in and assess and go, which one of these enrichment needs uh, is in deficit? Because that's where yeah. we need to put emphasis on. Is it? Is it rest and recovery or is it the fact that your dog isn't getting the opportunity of freedom of movement and agency? Um, and when I'm looking at that building resilience, I'm looking at it through that enrichment needs lens as well. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, enrichment is so much more than just giving them puzzle toys or a licky mat or a snuffle mat. Absolutely. Enrichment is, is, it's so it, it going back to against the framework. It's like really looking at: Am I meeting all of their needs, and what does that look like for this individual dog? Considering this individual household and this environment that they live in, and how do I provide that for them? And yeah, it can be challenging in urban environments. Like, how do you take a walk in nature? Well, I've had a couple clients where I've said, you know what? I think even if just once a month, you can rent a car or take a train and go out of the city for the dog. You know, or if that is like a hundred percent not possible, okay, what can we do to make it work for this particular dog in this particular context, considering your schedule and yeah. your resources and how do we set that up for success? And sometimes we have to get really creative so that we are meeting their needs based on, you know, like where the gap is, what the deficit is, what's missing beyond just maybe saying, oh, my dog is barking and lunging at dogs. Well, yeah, we'll address that. But we have to address all these other things as well, or you're not going to be able to sustain that. Yeah, like straight up 
let's take counter conditioning for an example is going to be completely futile if the mm. the dog is still you know stretched emotionally immensely and physically it's yeah a training plan is only as like is is only as good as the the kind of emotional state of the dog we're working with at the time right <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and again, it goes, there's so much information, even like in pop culture today about like that work for humans. Mm. Right. So there's so much of it. That's why like that book, Completing Burnout, Completing the Stress Cycle, written by um, Emily Naomi Nagowski, was written for humans and specifically women. It's not even, but it's, it's neurobiology. Mm-hmm. It's the nervous system, which dogs have as well. and activates similarly right and so um it's completely applicable like if you just are paying attention and reading what's out there in pop culture you can see that it's actually all about that level of self-care and balance and like the downtime that your body and brain needs at feeling safe and secure and all of these like freedom of movement things like that yeah i love that light bulb moment when the caregiver, the guardian, they, they just, they get it. You, you, you go, mm. your dog, your dog needs exactly what you need right now. You know, that, that, that nobody calls us when that's going well. Right. So they, yep. they need that pressure relieving and you know, it's yeah, we're trying to help the whole family achieve that uh, together. And then, then that's a really nice bonding moment as well between them and their dog. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is beautiful when it can work. And when they can see them as more than, I mean, they're dogs, but to also see them more than dogs, like more than just what we anticipate, like, you know, they're not objects, they're not disposable, they're not, right, they're beings, they're sentient beings, Um, they have complex emotions, they can think about things they can feel frustrated, they can feel disappointment to an extent, they can feel jealousy to an extent, right? They can feel feelings that are complex. And that's why they're companions for us. Like, that's why so many people want them living in our homes with us, like sharing our lives with us. Um, And so we can recognize, yes, they're dogs. And we do need to understand that with that comes certain responsibilities and certain boundaries. And they're so you know, if they behave a particular way, it's because of the underlying emotions and stressors that are occurring in their lives within internally, things like that. Um, Out in the environment, there can be so many things that's contributing to that behavior. And it's not because they're a bad dog. And it's not because they are spiteful. It's not because they're trying to dominate you. Like, none of those things are happening. And that is a fact. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to add to that. I'm going to say that that is I want to. I want that to be the last point made. So I'm going to say that is the best possible time to to wrap this up. <laughs> um, awesome. I before we go, I would love. Uh, I would love the listeners to know uh, where they can find you. Uh, what What have you got coming up uh, in the near future? Um, yeah, where can people find you? Yeah, so I can be reached at um, Behavior Vets is the company that I work for. So behaviorvets.com you can contact me through them. Uh, we also have a, a social media presence, um, Facebook, Instagram, 
So I can be reached there or at bobby at behaviorvets.com. So B-O-B-B-I-E to respond to emails. I work virtually. I see clients around the world. And um, we also have some events coming up. We, Dr. Kathy Murphy and I have a Resilience Rainbow Seminar in Asheville, North Carolina. We are doing a virtual version if you are tuning in from Australia or anywhere else in the world, as well as an in-person. If you'd like to come to the States, if you're not already listening from the States, please join us. That would be amazing. Um, and then just look to our website or our Facebook to find out tickets, or you can share them in your show notes. I can yeah. send them to you, right? Yeah. That'd be amazing. Thank you. And then also, I heard you're going to have Kim Brophy on, right? Yeah. Well, Kim, so, Kim's been on at this point. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she, we're doing, we're keynote speakers for her conference, her legs conference, legs in motion conference. And that's happening the same week as the resilience rainbow seminar. And we've got this special offer golden ticket, both virtual and in person. So we have this golden ticket opportunity as well. Um, so Dr. Kathy Murphy and I are keynote speakers for Kim Brophy's legs in motion conference. And um, it gives an opportunity for those attending either in person or virtually. They get a little bit of a discount if they want to attend both events for the Resilience Rainbow Seminar or the conference and the conference. And so we're very excited to be partnering with Kim Brophy in this way. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't wait to attend myself. It's going to be an awesome event. I really just want to say thank you thank so you. much for joining me today. This conversation has been. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've actually had to bite my tongue. I've wanted to go off on so many different tangents. Um, I just appreciate <laughs> it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode has been sponsored by Bono Behaviorist. Bono Behaviorist is a Sydney-based dog training and behavior company. I found it back in 2015. We've got a small but dedicated team of dog trainers and behavior consultants. We've helped over 4,000 people at this point with everything in between, helping people set up their new lives with their puppy or adopted dog, to working with people that have come to us to help them with dog training and behavior concerns. For more information, go to bondobehaviorist.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Bondi Behaviorist.